This is Aim High, the alumni podcast of Cranmer Kingswood, produced by University FM and co-hosted by Robert Lee and Kadir Mohammed. In this season, you'll hear from both alumni and faculty, people making an impact all around the world and linking it back to their time at Cranbrook, a special place and community that leaves us aiming high wherever we go. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode. Welcome to AIM High, Cranberry Kingswood Alumni Podcast. My name is Robert Lee. With me today is Daniel Jefferson, class of 1992. And Daniel, I'm going to hand it over to you. Give an intro to yourself. Thank you so much, Robert. I am excited to be here. This has been something that I've been wanting to do for a couple months. So I'm glad we were able to finally touch base and make this happen. As you said, my name is Daniel Jefferson. If I just go over quickly what I've been up to since Cranbrook. Uh, where I've gotten a lot of notoriety, at least in the Cranbrook circles, as I'm the founder of Blackbrook, which is essentially Cranbrook's answer to a Black Alumni Association. I founded it roughly 19 years ago. Next year will be our 20-year anniversary. So I'm the founder of Blackbrook. Outside of that, I'm an IT director at Charter Communications, specializing in database management and also I'm responsible for coming up with our strategy for cloud for most of our database organization. And lastly, I have an entertainment business called Got Jokes. Next year would be our 15th year, and we are seven-time creative loafing best of the Bay winners. I have talent all across the country, so that's been a passion of mine. But probably one of the titles I'm most proud of is I'm a former African-American Awareness Association president. 1992 at Cranbrook, and excited to talk to you about it. Lots to get into, and those three things seem very, very distinct, very separate from each other. So interested to figure out how you entered each of those fields, right? <laughs> so just to kick off, tell me a little bit about what Cranbrook was like in the late 80s, early 90s. How did you hear about it? Sure. So I grew up in the Detroit area. The school that I went to was called St. Gerard. Consolidated School. It was located off of Evergreen and Pembroke, right next to Henry Ford High School. During that time, I went there. I was a member of the church. I grew up Catholic, and I attended there from kindergarten all the way up to eighth grade. In my eighth grade year, I was introduced to a woman named Gail Vince, who was a member of Christ Church Grand. And I had straight A's the entire time. I was the clear valedictorian, classic Cranbrook overachiever type stuff. And at that time, when you went to Catholic school in that area, your choices were to go to either Bishop Borges or Benedictine, or if you were to go to one of the, I guess, charter-like schools, you're looking at a cast tech or a renaissance. So Gail Vince, Miss Vince, immediately said, you're not applying for any of those you need to go to Cranbrook. I had no idea what it was. So my story at Cranbrook is very unique because I am the only person that I know that went to Cranbrook with a scholarship from Christ Church Cranbrook. They paid for all four years, including my boarding. But before I went to Cranbrook, their scholarship initially was just to put me in a college prep school. So they actually had me work the circuit, almost as if you're going to college. And I went to Roper, Detroit Country Day, all of the Cranbrook rivals. And then they finally took me to Cranbrook and it was a no-brainer. I fell in love immediately. I saw the campus. 
I saw the people. I thought everybody was so nice and friendly. And then I couldn't believe that it was a bunch of people that were like me that raised their hand all the time and knew all the answers to the questions all in one spot on a beautiful campus. I fell in love with Cranbrook immediately. So that's how I ended up at Cranbrook. I went there all four years and I was a board. Yeah. So, I mean, so as, that sounds fantastic. It sounds like the Moniceva campus kind of found your, your tribe in a way. That's very true. Yeah. And I would not have been able to go there without getting that scholarship because my family, even though I went to Catholic school, my family never really had a lot of money. I've been lucky to be able to say that I have had private education my whole life, even though my family was living in poverty. My mom got me through Catholic school by being a lunch mother and doing things at the church. So my education was paid for. And then when I got to Cranbrook, that was based off of a scholarship. So I feel like I've always gotten top tier education, even though my family was not in the best spot. So I feel very blessed. I feel like I had a very small lane to be able to do something. And I took advantage of it. I was always focused. And I believe that type of drive, Robert, to be honest, is one of the reasons why I've had success in my career is because I always function like I'm not going to get another shot at this. I have to make the opportunity available to me work. Otherwise, the alternative is bleak, or at least it's something that I wouldn't be able to live with. So Mm -hmm. I've always been hungry. Luckily, I was afforded opportunities to get the best education possible, which I still consider Cranbrook to be one of the biggest advocates. And that's one of the reasons why, frankly, Robert, I'm so passionate about getting other people the opportunity and helping other people that have similar stories as myself. Yeah. So carrying that mentality you know, in your first first year at Cranbrook and throughout the four years there, how did you make the most of it? Well, I tell you, it was not easy for me initially, Robert. I feel like I learned a lot, some of the hardest lessons my first year. So just to kind of paint the picture for you a little bit, when I went to Catholic school, originally when I went there, it was about 50-50 black and white. And the church was highly integrated as well. So I went a very large portion of my elementary school years not knowing the difference between black and white really, to be honest with you. Now, I knew the difference between having money and not having money, but I didn't associate any of that with color barriers. So it really was not until I went to Cranbrook my first year where I started to understand some of the dichotomy or some of the issues that existed. When I got there immediately, I've always been friendly, talkative, made friends, but then I realized that, you know, I think my dining hall no moment where I went and I spoke to somebody in class and they talked to me and then I went to the dining hall and then they didn't sit with me. They sat somewhere else. Hmm. I remember how that made me feel. I also remember when freshmen were having parties and I wasn't invited to come, mostly because their parents had made assumptions that based on the color of my skin, that I could be potentially a problem. So they didn't want me in their house which as somebody that was like an altar server, never said a curse word, <laughs> really. But I mean, I right now, Robert, I am 47 years old. I've never drank and I've never smoked once in my life. So I'm about as innocent, or I want to say innocent, but I'm, about, I'm a very straight-laced person. So for them to look at me that way was disheartening. 
They also talk to me in homeboy talk, you know, hey, how you, all this stuff. These were things that I hadn't really experienced. So I like to tell most people that it was my freshman year that I really realized that, okay, I'm not like everyone else. And it's it's funny because sometimes it's just like that in so many spaces, Robert, like even in corporate America. It's not until you go into a room where somebody does something where you start to realize that you're, you're not the same as everyone else. And it's a very subtle thing. It could be you go up to them and everyone is saying hello. And when they come up to you and they say, hey, what's happening, brother? You know, and then you're, you're just like, what? You know, it's the microaggressions that people don't see. And then all of a sudden, you're no longer that technology smart person like everyone else. You're the black person in the room with everyone. And that's what it was like, really, initially at Cranbrook. So what I would like to say, it would be great to say I got there back then and it was this inviting environment, but it wasn't. It wasn't. In fact, I made, there were two guys, they were twins. Their names were Dee and Lee. And there was another person named Kareem Boyles. And then we were in Stevens Hall and we immediately became friends. And that became my support group and my family. We all came from humble beginnings. We didn't have a lot of money. We weren't even able to really go home on the weekends a lot because our families didn't have reliable transportation, but we were very smart and we had similar experiences. And I don't think that I would have got past those first two years without having that in place. Yeah. And everyone's experience is different, especially as you get older. When I started Blackbrook, I've learned that my experience is not the same as somebody that may have went there in 2010 or even the 2000s. But my experience when I went there as a freshman was one where I was dealing with severe imposter syndrome that I was feeling. I felt like I was a part of the community, but not really a part of the community. There are like two different strands going of Cranbrook life that people talked about. And mine was completely different. It's interesting to navigate through school First of all, you're a, a kid, so you got all that stuff happening, hormones all over the place. So you're navigating through all of that. And while you're going through all of that experience, at the same time, you're realizing that the rules that apply to you don't necessarily apply to everyone else. And the initial thought is to become angry. You get really mad. There was this guy, and I call him my mentor. His name is Brenner Witt. When I was a freshman, he was a senior, and he was an incredible figure. He used to ride the bus. He had this big boom box, and it looked like everybody was scared of him. And I was looking at him like, what are you doing, right? <laughs> and he looked like he was upset. And I was like, why are you so mad at everybody? These people are friendly. And then he kind of explained to me, concepts that I knew a little bit about, but it didn't really resonate. Like I didn't understand racism, really. I didn't understand outside of the stuff that they put in our history books when I went to Catholic school, which is very limited about Black people. Like there wasn't a lot of chapters and he just kind of exposed me to all this information that I didn't know. And it was very, it was something. So I, I went from the situation where I was kind of like this doe and things were happening. I didn't understand why to someone coming to me and explaining to me kind of what, how this all came about. And then when I heard all of it, then I was upset and mad. I was probably angry for about a good two years, even though I was still figuring out how to navigate. I was still upset with like the history and 
just the ignorance. And it's like my tolerance for people coming to me and doing the homeboy talk. Instead of me being shot, now I was just mad at it. So I would say when I talk about my Cranbrook experience, it evolved over time. It was innocence. Then it was anger. Then came some empathy where I started to get better at understanding a little bit more of where we come to the middle. And I feel like my junior and senior years were probably the biggest for me because living in the dorms, I eventually became head RA. I had conversations with people from all over the world. And it's very interesting to talk to someone and say, hey, what do you think the problem here is in America? And then give you a perspective from being from Scott. This was completely different than somebody that's here. They're like, from what I see, it's this. I did a lot of listening. And then I realized the commonalities. And then my anger started to subside a bit. And then it became more about understanding that there is power in being able to figure out what connects us. And also, even then, I had a stronger feeling of where diversity fits. Because it's not about saying that people are different. It's more so about appreciating differences than trying to act like they don't exist. It's like the narrative used to be back then, nope, we're all the same. Well, the reality is, no, we're not, right? We, we do have nuances, but what you should start to get better at is an empathy and an acceptance that things are different from you. And just because it's different doesn't mean that it's wrong or it's weird. It's just different. The other thing, too, I always say this as well, is that it, it's funny when you see, so I, I have my family that's four. They're struggling. They can't even come pick me up. And then I'm surrounded around all of these people that are, for the most part, middle class to upper class, pretty wealthy, all over the place. And then you hear what they're complaining about in the halls. You know, I didn't get the expensive car that I wanted to get for my parents. They must not love me. And you hear all these things, right? You see all that. And then you're thinking to yourself, this can't be real, you know, like <laughs> this can't be real. Like they have no idea that there's a whole nother world that's happening. But then also over life, you realize that I always used to parallel that their life is kind of like a book and people have different chapters and you never know where you're going to be. Yeah. During my four years there, it was a similar experience in terms of being exposed to different parts of life from people. So I, I came up through public schools and then Cranbrook, I was there for high school. For me, one of the interesting things was going through public school. I mean, I was only oh, probably one of five Asians in the entire school, but that really didn't occur to me in terms of differences, in terms of race. It was when I went to Cranbrook, so I boarded there. And when I first got there, a lot of people thought that I was one of the international Chinese students. <laughs> just because you were Asian. Yeah, just because I was Asian. Well, well yeah, because, <laughs> and it was during that time, during the four years there, it was also for, well, for me, it was figuring out what does it mean to be a Chinese American for my identity? How much do I align with being American versus being a Chinese person? And then at the end of the four years, I think it's coming to this conclusion that, hey, I, I mean, I, I'm a Chinese American, I'm Asian American. I am not Chinese. There's a lot of elements of Chinese culture that I did not grow up with. And the perspective I bring is a very American perspective, I think. So I was navigating through that. Maybe I went through the same stages. I, I think I had a little period of anger, but probably reached, also reached this period of empathy in a way too. It's kind of the same, same type of conclusion of, hey, there's a lot of different type of people out there. In some ways, Cranbrook was a heads up, <laughs> like this is coming to you. 
So like going to college and even after college now in the workplace, okay, a lot of nothing too new in terms of shocking experiences related to identity. I had a similar situation, Robert. So when I went to college, it was kind of like I've been through this already. Yeah. Because similar to yourself, dorm life as it. So were you in the dorms for four years, Robert? I was. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. So four years in the dorms as a high school person, you go to college and you're like, this is nothing because you're, you're going through all of those things. So Cranbrook was the very first place that gave me an opportunity to be a leader. The very first leadership position I ever had was president of the forum. And the way that that came about is they typically do an election near the end of the year. And you write names down and you say, this is who I think should be president. So never really saw myself as a leader. I felt like I had a very strong foundation and I spent a lot of time. Well, let me rewind a little bit. When I was in eighth grade, I graduated valedictorian and I kept to myself. I had one friend. That was it. And when I gave my speech, I remember looking into the audience when it was over and everyone was crying and hugging people and be like, I'm going to miss you. And I had none of that. And I said to myself, I think I missed something. In all of my ambition to try to be the best, I didn't really do anything to try to build community at all. And I said, if I get another shot at this, I'm not going to make the same mistake. I remember that feeling. It was like, it's like I felt like I won, but I really didn't win because I felt a little bit empty. It was like nobody was high-fiving me like, great job. My family, of course, but no one was really like excited. You know, and if they were excited, it wasn't a way where it felt connected. I just realized that I'd miss them. So what I focused on when I got to Cranbrook was I said, you know what? I'm going to talk to people, come out of my shell. I've always saw myself back then as a very introverted person. I would be in the corner reading books, wouldn't talk to people. And then when you did speak to me, I use these really big words where everybody laughs and they say, oh, well, he's so smart. I used to be me growing up. And then when I got to Cranbrook, I said, I'm going to talk and engage with people more. So I did that and I, I got better at it and I got better at it. So when I became a senior, they went to do the election and they said, your new president is Daniel Jefferson. And I was like, what? <laughs> I'm not even a leader. What are you talking about? And I was like, how could it not be you? And then I, it was that point where I started to see myself differently. And so I navigated like somebody that was a leader, made decisions. And I realized that, hey, I'm actually pretty good at this. But I never saw myself as that person before. But I'll, I'll give you this too. And these are two things that nobody ever knows. And I'm going to, I'm going to expose it on this podcast for you, Robert. <laughs> yes, please. I got two stories for you that are very interesting and they mean a lot to me. Story number one, the greatest teacher I ever had was also my worst teacher. And I'm going to tell you why. So I was in this English class and I had this teacher and I'm not going to say his name, but I'll just say that he was super dynamic. Used to dress up and did all these things doing like he wouldn't just read Macbeth. He'd come there all dressed up and do all these exquisite things. And I always thought I was a great writer. I thought I was a fantastic writer even before I got to Cranbrook. And I would take this guy's classes and he kept giving me beads on my paper. And I was like, Danny Jefferson doesn't do beads. And how am I getting B's in writing? And he would give me these notes and he would tell me, you need to do this, that, and that. And he was trying to introduce structure to what I was doing. Initially, 
because I was so used to the idea of being the smartest in the class and that type of thing that I thought I had it figured out. I felt like I could write better than most people without even trying. So I got sick of the bees because I didn't like them. So I finally said, you know what? I'm going to listen to what this guy has to say. So I went over all of his notes and I put the paper together. And when I finished, I was like, wow, this is the greatest thing I've ever done. He was right. I was so excited. I could not wait to turn the paper into him. So I turned it into him. And I even remember what it was about. It was about I had to write some extended metaphor on something. And so I made this whole metaphor around shoes and tied into racial dynamics and all of these things. And it was very beautifully written and organized. Everything that he told me to do that he had taught me in a class that I was fighting because I just wanted to do my own style. I felt like he was trying to tell me a better way to write than what I was doing and that I knew better. But he was, he was absolutely right. So I, I took his advice. I did it. And when I gave it to him, I remember that it was the last day and he went to me and I thought he was going to come to me and say, there you go, Daniel. You finally took my advice. And you know what he did? Instead, he came to me and he circled a word and he said, what does this mean? And it was something simple like archaic or something. And I'm like, means old. Like, it even sounds like it's an archaic sounds old. Like, what are you asking me? And then he asked me, where did I get the paper from? Hmm. And then I realized he was accusing me of plagiarism. <laughs> and so imagine the feeling, right, of doing something like that, feeling like you have reached something, and then someone when in a stroke that takes it all away from you, and it feels very demeaning. Hmm. To me, that exemplifies what it means to move in excellence with an understanding of what the world is really like, because that gave me a little bit of hindsight on what I would have to, what I experience when I leave, because it's not always the best person that moves up. You can work really hard, but sometimes you have to get past a lot of politics in order to do it. Now, he ended up, he couldn't figure out he was like, I looked everywhere and I can't find it. I'm like, you're not going to find it because I wrote it. And I literally wrote it listening to what you said. And he never apologized for it. He stood by his guns and he was wrong. He was absolutely wrong. So I carry that with me. I've had situations where I've moved in my career professionally and I've run into things where I felt like I've outperformed people. But because of stereotypes, good old boy system type thing. You don't necessarily move up as fast. It's like you have to move in perfection in order to get past some type. The higher you go up, the harder it is to break ceilings. And I'm young enough to have worked in a workplace where I've broken a lot of ceilings. I've been the first in my industry at companies multiple times when it comes to things. So much so that when they tell me no one has ever done it, it used to be, you're the youngest Black person, you're the youngest person. I used to hear that all the time whenever I push a door open. But most of it, it would be because they would be giving, it's like you'd see someone move up that does just a little bit more. And then me, I'm doing like, I will stay and I'm working to two in the morning and I'm blowing stuff out the park. And it's like, I'm working really hard. And this person with minimum effort is coming with me the same way. <laughs> you see that happen enough time, you think, man, it's not really shit. 
But at some point, though, all of that hard work, it's like you build a muscle where you become strong enough where it's really hard for any ceiling to hold you back. Like once you get all of those skills, it doesn't really matter how strong the ceiling is. You feel like you can bust through with excellence and hard work. You know, one of the biggest things that I learned was like a mentor system of having a circle of people that buy into you and sponsor you, you know, is kind of a big deal, which also pulls back into what I do at Cranbrook. So anyway, there's that. And here's my second story. And this is my story. This, I had a track coach, similar situation. I had a track coach. If he ever listens to this podcast, he's probably going to turn red. On my team, I was not the fastest person at all. I was probably the second fastest person on the team. But what I did, because of my commitment that I said when I was in eighth grade, whenever anybody was doing any event, when people like it's near the end and nobody cares and they're like doing their own thing, I was near everyone, cheering you on, giving them advice, saying, hey, I noticed you did this. I was doing all of that. And I wasn't doing that to try to get any favor. I just felt like it was the right thing to do. And so it came time at the end of the year. And at the end of the year, they had to announce captains of the team. And so they go through the voting, they announce the two captains. And when it's done, everyone comes up to me and they're like, wow, I just knew you had it. I thought everybody voted for you. And I said, why? Not even the best at anything. And they're like, seriously, you're the only person who cares. You're like everywhere. I remember looking at the piece of paper when the coach wasn't looking and I saw that I had more votes the most votes, but something in him decided that he wasn't going to give it to me, gave it to someone else. And I didn't even know what to do with that. I held it in. So he robbed me of the ability to have my name on one of those plaques. Right. And I worked so hard. I was so athletically, I was never like the best athletic wise, but I was a super hard worker. So it was like, we had some people who could do minimum, but they'd be great. Like all of my strides happened as a result of killing myself in the weight room, doing all of this stuff to try to do it. And there was a part of me that felt like I didn't deserve to be like a captain type of deal because I wasn't the best. But as I you know, thought about it more, I thought, wow. And I didn't even know how to really advocate for myself back then. I kept it in. But that was another example of excelling, and then there being some things out there that prevent you from going there. So I thought that's an important story to say, because all of this stuff happened as a Cranbrook student. But those are the things that happened to me that didn't happen. They weren't great, but they also helped my character. They made me stronger. But that was also complemented by all these other things that I did where I was building relationships. I learned things. I got a perspective that I wouldn't have gotten from Cranbrook. And as I started to evolve, one of the things that it became very important to me, especially when talking to other students, that's one of the reasons why I started Blackbrook, is I wanted people of color who went to Cranbrook's door to feel like they had a sense of ownership and that this was their place. In those two stories, I'm interested to hear a little bit about how you reacted at the time and how you react now. And you mentioned also at that time, not being able to advocate for yourself. So how that perspective has changed. And I'm interested in hearing about how you advocate for others. Yeah. Okay. So, so how I acted in those situations, I did not believe I had a voice. I didn't believe anybody would believe me. 
And I also thought that it may make my situation worse. So in both situations, I thought if I say this teacher accused me for something I didn't do, why would they believe me? Most people probably don't believe that I did it anyway. Right. So that's how I felt then. And the same thing with the coach. I felt who's going to believe the story for me. They're going to think that I was, I'm upset because of something because he was a nice guy. He's made a poor decision in the moment. I see him at reunions every now and then. And I think to myself, should I have a conversation with him? I wonder if it has value. But I will say that those two things were the way that it's kind of made me grow is that I am an advocate for people. I'm a mentor. I started Blackbrook. I love building community. And part of building an effective community is to make sure that everybody has a voice. Uh, in those situations, I felt like I didn't have control. I think the reason why I haven't done much after that is for those particulars, because they don't control me anymore. They don't define me, right? There is something that I took and I use it as power and I use it to help people. So the outcome is great. It's probably a good segue to talk about Black Brook. So I started Black Brook in 2003. And it happened as a result of me going to our annual reunion. And we would go there and typically it's like funerals and weddings. It's like you see people and then everyone says, I mean, this, this predates social media. So it's like, hey, we should talk more, but nobody ever does. Right. So I said after that, that, you know what? I'm going to create a website for everybody to keep in touch. People joke that I made Facebook before it was Facebook. But that's what I did. I created a website so people could stay connected. And it started off where it was like about 10 of us. And then a weird thing happened. People started inviting people to the website. And there were people I didn't know. They were from like more grades. And it just kept growing and growing and growing. And at the time, my whole purpose was to create community. I didn't think of anything bigger than that vision. I just wanted to create the community. So I probably went a good 10 years, Robert, where I was just growing that base. And we finally got to about over 100 people. And I thought that was impressive, especially given that Cranbrook, I don't think there was ever a time there's ever been more than 10% Black people that have gone there. So I got around 100 and I thought it was good. And then this whole thing happened with Facebook and everything. And then I thought people were like, hey, why don't you just move it to Facebook? And then I thought, yeah, it makes sense because they're doing it way better than me. I'm limited. I could probably get more membership. I moved it to Facebook and we moved from 100 to 300 people. <laughs> it blew up and people are working together, networking, doing things, thinking about businesses, having conversations. And probably about maybe eight years ago, someone said, what are we doing to give back to Cranbrook? And I, in my brain, I was like, well, I don't know. Is that something you all want to do? And I started, we started talking and there was interest. And I thought about it more. And then I realized that as I started to move in my career, that I wasn't taking advantage of what I really created. So I reached out to Cranbrook and it started off with Arla Seibert, Miss Seibert. Was she in charge when you went to Cranbrook, Robert? Yes, she was. Okay. Yep. So it started off with her and we started building a relationship. The first thing she said to me is, you did this, Daniel? She remembered me. And she's like, you got all these people together? And I'm like, yeah, I kind of did. And she was like, this is fantastic. And so we started talking about what we're going to do. I came up with a charter and we started talking about things, but it was slow moving. 
it was hard to try to get people together. And I will, to be honest, I was still mastering my ability to organize people effectively, especially people that were really busy. It's really challenging to do that. And around that same time is when I started my entertainment company and I was doing something similar there. So I kind of took some of the principles that I did in entertainment and I brought them over to the, the Blackbrook space and started improving. And then we had an opportunity about four years ago. This is when AC took over. New leadership was coming. And at this point, I felt like I really understood what I needed to do. Like it was super laser focused. I know exactly what I want. And so I put together all these committees and we came up with a list of I don't want to say demands because it sounds very, give us what us, give us what we want. But it was more saying, here are areas that we feel like Cranbrook can be better. We have spoken to all of these Black alumni. It's over 300 of us. And we like to see these things. And the first thing that we like to see is representation. We looked at the boards and there's no one there. What I realized is that it's bigger than just being on campus. We need to become decision makers. So... I put a lot of energy in saying, how do we become decision makers? Is it money? We have money. Is it contribution or volunteerism? Let us know, we'll do it. Do we need to be more present on campus? So we started doing that, started having that conversation. And the culmination of all of that, really, Robert, was the 4A program that we had. Because I made a promise to AC. I said that, look, if you work with me and you help me with these things, I promise you. I will increase involvement from the Black community and I will get all of these people on campus. And it was a very grand thing to say because in all the years we've been there, nothing like this has ever happened. But I feel like I'm really blessed, Robert, because my gift, I used to think that my gift was being one of the smarter people in the room. I thought that was it. Then I went to Cranbrook, it was very humbling when I met a whole bunch of people smarter than they just were. <laughs> Some of the smartest people I've met in my life with the Cranbrook. So then I realized it has to be more than me than just being smart. And now I realize what my secret power is, is community building. And for some reason, there's something that I say and my ability to be humble, I guess, and understand that we all come from one place. The empathy portion, which I feel like is key in the world, is the part that brings people together and they believe in the vision. And so... I was super excited because I use my ability to market and push and motivate people. And we did two functions. We had one function that was a Blackbird function, which was a get together that was off campus. We had over a hundred people show up to that. Nothing like that has ever happened. And they were from classes dating all the way back to the seventies and eighties, all the way up until recent. And it was beautiful. And it was a tearful moment for a lot of people. Because most of those people are not used to seeing that many Black people from Cranbrook in one place. They're used to their circle being so tiny. So for it to be an entire restaurant filled with people that look like you, that have an experience, there is just a power to that that is really hard to really articulate in words. Especially if your memory of Cranbrook is one of feeling like you're by yourself. And so they immediately felt like they owned something. And these are people that didn't necessarily graduate. To be a part of Blackbrook, you simply have to go there one year. Because to me, it's like going to college. If you are able to pay for one year at Cranbrook, you get to reap the blessings of having that shirt on that says, I'm a Cranbrook person. 
That's what I believe. So all of that. And then we had our 4A, which I was told had the largest attendance out of any event reunion weekend. And we filled up the entire dining hall. Yeah, that was impressive. So some of those people have not been at Cranbrook for 20, 30 years. And they came out for that. And their response afterwards is that I will never miss another one. Like it was the words that they wanted to hear is what I gave them. I told them that they had power. I told them that they were being listened to and that they have a part, they play a big part in the legacy of Cranbrook. And those are the types of things that you've always wanted to hear if you're a person of color that you didn't believe. But I felt like in that one day they did. And that to me, that was a great accomplishment. Well, hey, while we're on 4A, most people won't be able to see it, but you're wearing a 4A shirt. So yeah. is there a story behind that? Yes. Thank you. Oh, man, you're good at this, Robert. We should be a tactic. All right. <laughs> so back in high school, we had a 4A shirt that was designed by an Asian person, believe it or not, Robert. This is interesting. Yeah, by an Asian person. And he created this original design. And it was very popular. And so if you go back and you look at yearbooks, it was like they sold it during my, I guess it was when I was a sophomore. And so basically anybody in between grades 90 through 94 probably owned this shirt that they were black. And people always ask, how do I get one? How do I get another one printed? And it's kind of been a famous design for a long time. So one of the things that I wanted to do using my marketing background is I wanted to encourage people to come. And I said that if you show up for the function, I will also be selling these shirts. So in the original was this color. So what I did was I took a picture, literally nothing but a picture of an old shirt. And I paid a graphic designer like 125 bucks. And they recreated, modernized some of the thoughts to be more what it used to be. And then what I really like is if you look at the back, which you can't see if you're listening, we actually have all of the presidents that were ever for a president in the history of Cranbrook. One thing that you may not know, maybe you know this, Robert, but do you know that in the history of Cranbrook, all of the presidents have been Black, with the exception of one president in 2011 and 2012? Did you know that? Well, I knew that at the uh, reunion. I didn't know that before. <laughs> yeah. And it's Darren Chen. So Darren Chen. Darren Chen. Yep. For the life of me, I don't know how that story happened, but it's, it's true. But I think it kind of speaks to what 4A is, which has always been an organization that's invited everyone to be a part of it. And the fact that you can even have an Asian president of the 4A speaks to the long legacy of family and of interconnectedness that I believe that that organization is about. So I am super proud. Even today, I think I've been in probably, I'm a part of different boards and stuff all over in tech. And I do a lot of community outreach. And it's crazy, but, you know, on my top five list of organizations I've ever been a part of, it will always be these people, the African-American Awareness Association, because they were the first people that identified me as a leader and made me see myself different. So, Dan, tell me what's next. You know, after this hugely successful reunion event, what's next for 4A? What's next for Blackbrook? Sure. That's a great question. And I'm actually prepared to talk about it a little bit. I'm glad you said that. And I think we've talked a lot. I didn't even tell you anything about my entertainment business, but now you have a reason to interview me again, right, Robert? <laughs> That's all part two. <laughs> <laughs> part two. So 
a couple things. Four A anniversary is not the first time that Blackbrook has interacted with Cranbrook. Like I was talking about before, Robert, we've been on this journey with Cranbrook for quite some time, and in the last few years with AC, we've really jumped up our presence. We I think we have something like four or five board members at Cranbrook right now that are black, and which I'm super proud of. There is a Kwanzaa celebration that happens annually at Cranbrook. That was discontinued during COVID. It kind of paused things, but typically during that Quasar celebration, they bring former 4A people to Cranbrook and they participate in this Quasar celebration with the existing 4A. So last year was virtual, and this year they plan on making it in-person. And my expectation is that based on the momentum that we received from this last event, including the presence of the current president, which I thought was really great, the one young lady that came up and spoke at the 4A reunion was very dynamic, and I'm really excited about her. But her current team is throwing this Kwanzaa celebration, and we expect to have a lot of participation from Black alumni graduates. So that normally happens around right before the winter break. So you can expect that that will happen. The other thing that's happening at Cranbrook is that the 4A, they were the first ones to start these virtual career panels. I think like two years ago, they had all of these different people from different industries come talk to the 4A. And then they decided that this was such a great idea that they expanded it out to everyone at Cranbrook. So last year, I was invited to be on the tech panel. It wasn't just a 4A thing. It was for the whole entire Cranbrook community. And my understanding is that they're going to continue that legacy this year. This will be the third year. And so they'll have the panels. But, but they also see the value in members of the 4A seeing people that look like them were successful. There'll be a separate panel that has a 4A focus to it that I think is going to be very good for current Black students that attend Cranbrook. So worth participating in that way. And the last thing I'd like to mention, are you familiar with Cranbrook Conversations at all, Robert? Yes. The uh, online series, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So then you probably know that they have a very strong charter to justice, diversity, equity, and, and inclusion. And they recently had esteemed guests like Dr. Cornell West yes. and Isabel Wilkerson, who's a Poet Surprise winner. Uh, so you can expect that they will continue that series. They use Blackbrook people to help host the events. So we have a very strong connection with that process. And my understanding now is that they're making these series available to the public. So it won't only just be people in the, I think in these past ones that we've done, it's been very limited filtered audience. And now they'll be able to share this with the greater community, which I think it's great. So again, this, these are ways that Blackbrook and Black alumni are giving back, contributing, becoming more of the story. And I think that there'll be other great things to come. I have a strong cadence with AC and Jeff Susick, Dr. Jeff Susick. We, we talk often and we'll probably have, and also Susan Post. And I have no doubt in my mind that we'll probably have a conversation and talk about what can we accomplish this year. And there's a lot of cool things on the agenda. I'm a big dreamer. So 
I'm hoping that this will probably be our most active and participant year yet, especially since there's a lot of strong momentum after the reunion. And it looks like the COVID stuff is finally starting to get under control. It seems like we're starting to see some normalcy, Robert. So I'm hoping that with the ability to be more present on campus, that we'll continue to build this relationship with Cranbrook. And I'm excited. So that's what we're doing, sir. You're a big dreamer. And also, just from here, all this, a big achiever too. So no doubt it's going to keep growing. No doubt there's going to be some very, very interesting events and big impact that we haven't even thought about today, right? Absolutely, sir. So for people who want to reach out to you or get connected to help in some way, how can they find you? You can email me at MotownPride at gmail.com. Motown Pride is actually my performance name. So in performance circles, everybody calls me Motown. That just proved right now I live in Charlotte, North Carolina, but everybody knows me as being somebody from Detroit. I wear that with pride. You can contact me there. I'll be more than happy to chat with you. And that's in anything, you know, entertainment, Cranbrook activism, and even in the tech world, I have a strong soft spot for anybody that went to Cranbrook. And so if there's anybody that's looking for mentorship or they have any questions at all in the tech space, I am happy to help. Amazing. Yeah, we we definitely have to do a part two because there is so much that we did not cover. (laughs) (laughs) So much more to talk about, but this was a great conversation. Thank you so much for coming on to share. Thank you, Robert. I look forward to coming here again on one of those milestone episodes. This has been Aim High, Primary Kingswood's alumni podcast. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate if you could take a few seconds to subscribe wherever you listen and leave us a five-star review. This helps a lot in getting the word out and making the podcast easier to find. Thank you so much for listening and catch you soon.